Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org. Join us now as Pastor Keith Moore shares today's message. In the fall of 1962, my daddy woke me up on a beautiful sunny Saturday morning and said, Son, let's get dressed. And uh, I did, and he put me in the 1953, still a 1953 Chevy Impala. Anybody know what that looked like? Kind of looked like a turtle. And, um, and, uh, and we uh, drove across town, uh, which took about three minutes in Bremen, Georgia, to drive all the way across town to the high school. And as we approached the high school, there were just these, these rivers of people coming from every direction, parents and children. And uh, we got out, and I can remember walking on the sidewalk in front of the high school, down to the side of the cafeteria and into the door, got in line, and uh, stepped up to a table where a nice lady that I knew who worked for the county department of health uh, took a little dropper and put a little drop of something on a uh, cube of sugar and he said, here, son, eat this. Sugar, did you do that? JB, did you do that? How many of you did that? What, what, what were we being vaccinated for? Polio. Polio. Vaccinations uh, are fascinating things. The, the immunization process uh, is, is such that uh, a, a dead virus of a particular disease is introduced into your body, either a little scratch on your arm for smallpox, we did, or that drop of vaccine on a sugar cube, and it creates an imitation infection in our bodies. It's an imitation. It's not the real thing. Uh, but it's uh, so similar that our bodies then go about creating the capability of fighting off the real thing uh, should we ever encounter it in the future. It, it keeps us from getting the real thing, and that's very positive. It's possible to be vaccinated and become immune to getting real Christianity, real faith. Now, obviously, Christianity is not a disease that we're wanting to avoid, and faith in Christ is not a disease that we're trying to avoid. But I, uh, I fear for some of us in this church family. You know, I, uh, the, the scriptures say, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, almost a year ago, the first Sunday of August of this past year, I had you open to the first chapter of the book of Proverbs. And in verse 7, we read these words. They're going to be on the screen as well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That phrase, the fear of the Lord, is, uh, is repeated 18 or 19 times, something like that, in, just in the book of Proverbs alone. Uh, we see it again in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, listening closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding, furthermore, if you call out to insight, and lift your voice to understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Now, the fear of the Lord meant a lot of things to the nation of Israel. If we, if we could go forward to the New Testament, and those of us who look back on these truths from, from the New Testament side of faith... Uh, the fear of the Lord meant 
coming to know and love, understand, and, and relate to the God of the Bible. In the New Testament, we would call it being born again, uh, being born spiritually, uh, receiving Christ, being adopted as a child of God, being saved. That's a good Bible word, saved. Uh, and so, men, as your pastor on Father's Day, I... I uh, I want you to know that I'm concerned for really every realm of your life and pray for all of the men in our church. I'm, uh, I'm concerned for your, your financial well-being. I'm concerned for your relational well-being with your spouse and your kids and your friends. Um, I'm concerned about uh, and want to help with your um, career, your work, uh, your job, your, your, your physical health. Uh, but as a pastor, I am charged by God to be first and foremost concerned about the state and health of your soul. And uh, that affects everything else. Uh, I, I, am, I am to be dealing... In fact, God's going to call me into account, Scriptures say, uh, as to at least how diligent I was in making sure that you were in the faith, uh, that you got the real thing, uh, well, I mean, what could be worse than being deceived about your relationship to Jesus Christ? Now, a lot of bad things can happen to you, but just imagine this scenario. Imagine getting to the end of this life, closing your eyes here, opening them there on the other side of death in eternity and standing immediately before the judgment seat of Christ. And you, I mean, and you do know that's what's going to happen, right? That's, if you want to know what happens when you die... I mean, 30 seconds after you die here, you are before Christ. You face the judgment. Is, well, how do you know that? Well, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says it this way. It is appointed for people to die once. Uh, no slap at our, our friends who believe in reincarnation, but once. And after this, the judgment. We are right there. We're going to face the judgment. And Jesus himself was very clear. In fact, he was adamant. Uh, he was concerned about this because there will, he said there will be men and women who will think that they are okay with God, who will think that they are in the kingdom of God, who th will think that they are in the kingdom of heaven, who will think that they are in Christ, uh, the Apostle Paul's favorite phrase to describe this condition, but they are not. And they will stand before him and be shocked. They, they will have been wrong. They will have been deceived. They will have uh, been mistaken. They got it all wrong. I mean, listen to this, Jesus. You can hear the passion in his voice in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he included his concern for us in this matter. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, it will enter the kingdom of heaven. He means not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, speaking of that day, judgment. Die here, judgment there. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? I mean, you know, they, they've said, didn't we do a lot of good things? And we said we knew you, and then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Who are you? I mean, that, that's the spirit of the, who are you? 
You're not in my family. You're not in my, you're not in my kingdom. You're not, you're not in Christ. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Now that's frightening. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, there are some instructions that I want us to follow this morning in about the next 20 minutes. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? So men and ladies, I'm going to ask you to join in. Students, if you're in here, I'm going to ask you to join in. Let's, let's do the test. Let's test ourselves to see if we are in the faith, if we are in the kingdom of God, if we are in the family of God, if we have genuinely been saved, reborn, walking, knowing, walking with Christ and received his benefits. I, I like how Dr. Eugene Peterson paraphrased this passage he said it this way, test yourselves to make sure you are solid in the faith. Don't drift along taking everything for granted. Give yourselves regular checkups. You need firsthand evidence, not mere hearsay, that Jesus Christ is in you. Test it out. If you fail the test, do something about it. And, and, and men, this is not just about you and your faith. This is also about the faith of your kids, your children. Because you are the most influential person in their lives spiritually. I'm not. Their mama's not, even though she's beyond uh, just overwhelming in her influence on their lives. You're the most powerful influence in this world other than God himself on the faith of, their ch- of your children. Uh, they're going to most likely, they're going to have a great tendency to adopt the same kind of faith you have. So it's, imp- it's important that we... Uh, Answer the question, well then, what is necessary, what does it take for a person to be in the family of God, in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, uh, adopted by Christ, in Christ? What, what is necessary? For the Bible is very clear as to what we are to know and what we are to be and do for that to take place because there's a transition that takes place. And so I'm here, you can jot these down on your note sheet if you like. Here's the first thing the scriptures say. The first thing that is necessary is to have a knowing of the true God and the foundational truths of Jesus Christ. Uh, the scriptures say in Romans 10, 17, that faith, it means saving faith, the kind of faith that results in, in being moved from the power of Satan to the power of God, from death to life, uh, the saving faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the scriptures teach us who God is, what his concerns are, and the foundational truths of the faith. You see, no, no man can be converted to Christ without knowing what he's doing. No one is saved in a passive position. No one becomes a follower of Jesus and says, Ooh, what just happened to me? I didn't have anything to do with this. No one, no one comes to faith can be born again into the kingdom of God without knowing the facts of who the God of the Bible is. See, there are many who believe in that God. I turned on the TV, changing channels, trying to find something to watch. I didn't. But uh, I passed a channel that's kind of the weird spiritual channel. There are all kinds of people there proclaiming things about some God, really weird things, not the God of the Bible. Not the God of the Bible, but who God the Father is. Without knowing Jesus and what he did, what he accomplished when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. 
Why, why, we, why we need to know that. No one can come to the kingdom of God without knowing what God demands of us, which is sinless perfection, at least on our account sheet. Uh, without knowing who we are and our condition before God, without knowing what will happen in eternity and what Jesus did, again, when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. No one can come to faith in Christ, can be in the kingdom of God without knowing God's plan, that his original plan for you and me and all of mankind was that we may have life in him and have it abundantly, without knowing our problem that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death, a living death and a, uh, an eternal uh, death, separation from God. No one can come to faith without knowing God's provision for this terrible problem we have. And that is He entering the world Himself as Jesus Christ and going to the cross in our place for our sins paying the penalty in full, the just, the Bible says, for the unjust, in order that he might bring us back to God. No one can come to faith. No one can be in the kingdom of heaven without knowing what our response to all these truths, these foundational truths, are to be. That we are to repent of our sin, that we are to place our active trust in Jesus, that we are to surrender our lives as best as we understand it to him as Lord, as boss, as owner, controller. Uh, of our lives. We said, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I was baptized as a kid. I mean, I've been a Christian since I was a little boy. I, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I've been a Christian since I was a little boy. I've, you know, I, frequently I hear that in the, here in our culture. We live in a Christianized culture. As goofy and chaotic and weird as it is today, we still live in a Christianized culture. And so I hear it frequently. Uh, hey, I, I'm okay, baptized as a kid, had this religious experience as a kid, or I've been a Christian since I was a little boy. My mama said I was. I'm good. Well, you might not be good. I hope you're good. But let's examine ourselves to make sure we are in the faith. So, well, Pastor, I, I've always believed in God. Good. But no one ever entered the kingdom of heaven because they believed in God. Not one person. Not one. I mean, the scriptures say this in James chapter 2, verse 19. Take a look at it on the screen. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. The devil himself believes in God. He certainly is not okay with God. In fact, he knows way more about him than we do. And he, he, so, good. You've got to believe in him, and you've got to believe in the right one. But there's much more to it than that. So to be saved, you and I must know the, the fundamental truths of the faith, of God's plan for us to be saved, to be reborn spiritually, to be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God through faith in Christ. And second, here's a big one. Well, there must be a knowing and a feeling of personal sin and guilt and condemnation. I mean, we not only know that we are sinful, we feel it. Uh, it, it involves, uh, it includes being sorrowful for our sin and, and how it has offended a holy, loving God. 
It does include the desire to escape the results of the condemnation. That's not bad. That's good. Um, but it includes even more than that. Again, we feel it. We feel, we acknowledge that we are sinful people in need of a Savior. We feel the weight of the guilt of the way we've been living in revolt against the rule of a holy God in our lives. Now, this is quite different from seeing ourselves as basically a good person who's not perfect. This is quite different from admitting, well, hey, nobody's perfect. This is quite different from, from believing that we're a good person who sometimes makes mistakes. Listen, we are not mistakers. We are sinners. Intentional, on purpose, did it knowingly. Walked away from God when we became capable of moral action. Uh, and so there is an overwhelming sense of the reality of, of, our, of our need to be reconciled to God because of our of our sin, and that we are in trouble. It's the attitude that we see in the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, when he saw the Lord. He says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's the same attitude that we see in the Apostle Peter when he realized who Jesus was for the very first time, that he was no less than God himself come in the flesh. In that fishing boat, after Jesus' miracle in the boat, in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me because I am a sinful man, Lord. It's the attitude we see in the tax collector that Jesus described in Luke chapter 18. Uh, you know, the tax collectors of the day were sinful people. They were considered the worst sinners in all the culture by the Israeli uh, people. And uh, Jesus called the attention of a tax collector who was repenting and he praying to God. And this was his attitude. He said, standing far off, he would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. I mean, it's, have you ever, men, can you look back in your journey with Christ? Did you ever come to the place where you had the same, not just awareness, but emotion that the people of the, the men in the streets of Jerusalem had on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the apostles spilled out into the streets and began to proclaim the good news of Christ in, in all the languages of the people who were gathered there in Jerusalem for the Passover. And when Peter uh, proclaimed uh, Jesus as crucified and that they were responsible for rejecting the Savior, the Messiah, it says they were stricken in their hearts. And they cried out, What, what, what must we do to be saved? Have you ever come to that place where you've realized, I'm in trouble. I'm stricken in my heart over my own sinfulness. That's necessary. That is necessary. Uh, let's talk about even our children. And when you were young, I mean, we had vacation Bible school this last week. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about it at the end of the service. But we had 38 children who made professions of faith, at least they told us that they were placing their saving faith in Christ Jesus. Well, we're very careful with them. We're very, very careful with them. Well, one of the things we look for to know if, to know where they are is, is if, do they have an awareness of their own sinfulness before God? And this, this is more than just, did, have you ever disobeyed your mama? 
Because my little, my three and a half year old granddaughter knows when she's disobeyed her mama, but she has, she has no concept of the fact that she hasn't rebelled against God. She loves Jesus. She just knows sometimes I don't do what mama tells me. It's what, see, sin is way more than that. We don't become sinful until we become capable of moral action. We mature to the place as a human being that we know right from wrong and we intentionally say, I'm going to go my way instead of God's way. Well, is that, has that happened to you? Knowing the foundational truths, awareness and the feeling of the, the severity of our sin before God. Second is repentance. Now, repent is a good word. It's actually a positive word. Our culture's made it a negative word. When you hear, see the word repent, you have caricatures of, of uh, red-faced Southern Baptist pastors like me who are... You know how you can tell a Southern Baptist pastor, don't you? We're usually overdressed and out of style. But anyway, that's the... That's it. So, and, so, so, and you're red-faced and you're angrily yelling, repent, like it's a negative thing. No, no, repent's a good word. It means turning from, turning from destruction to life. Yeah, turning from bad to good. Turning from hopelessness to hope. There is a, there is a turning. Listen, look at, back at Proverbs since we've been camping out in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. It says, the fear of the Lord, in other words, the being saved, is to hate evil, to hate our sin. To, be, to begin to be repelled by our sinful condition and the actions that we express because we are in our sins. We no longer want it. We, we, may not, we may still be in the grip of it, but we realize, I no longer want this and I want help. I need, I need help. We, we hate evil. Look at also at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It is the word for repent, to turn away from evil. It's a change of mind about our condition that results in a change of direction with our lives in relationship to Christ. We recognize our sin. We acknowledge our condition and, and, and our revolt against God and, and this intentional uh, rebellion. We acknowledge it and we sense that we're separated from God and we ask, we want to turn from it and we ask for His help in turning. We know we need God's help even to turn to Christ. We know and feel that we are sinful and self-centered and, uh, and instead we begin to hate our evil instead of love it. I had one fellow one time, he was a smart aleck and, uh, you know, about things. But he liked to razz me about the faith. I loved him. He loved me, but he was a jerk. <laughs> he was my jerk and I loved him, but he, was, he could be a pretty good jerk at times. But he said, oh, pastor, he said, oh, preacher, he, you know, oh, preacher. He said, uh, I've been reading that I'm supposed to love my enemies, and I think I got that right. I just love my enemies. I love my enemies. My, my biggest enemies are liquor and wild women. I just love them. Well, if we're still loving our behavior, sinful behavior that comes from a, a wicked heart, whatever we've done, we've not repented. Again, we may still be in the grip of it, but we're, we're trying to get free. Get me out of here, God. Help me. Help me. There is a turning from something to something. Now, you see, repentance is also not just saying that we are sorry for our sin or, or simply feeling sorry for our sin. I, 
Back in 1970, the summer of 1977, I was a youth minister at the First Baptist Church of Cedartown, Georgia, up in northwest Georgia. I had a great time there between college and seminary. Well, that summer, five of our guys were camping out one night. There's not much to do in Polk County, uh, especially in the middle of the night. Speaking of Father's Day, my father always used to say, be home at 11. Why, Daddy? Nothing good happens after 11. Well, it didn't that night for these guys either. So they were bored. They got tired of what they're doing, and they, they just all got their driver's license. So they snuck out and got one of the guy's uh, daddy's cars, went out back to his shop and got the biggest um, pipe wrench pole that they could find, and they went around and turned on all the fire hydrants in town. And uh, the fire department called the police that we're in trouble. There's no, I mean, they had... There was no water pressure in the town. I mean, you could have burned the whole place down. Well, again, you've heard me talk about the doofus factor in guys, middle and... There was high doofus factor in these five guys. I mean, I'd known them since they were in the seventh grade, and they had not been delivered from it yet. And um, and so, um, so the police found them, called their daddies at four in the morning, come down to the police station. Uh, so after it was over, I, I talked to one of the guys later in the week. Said, "Well, how'd that how'd that go?" And he's telling me about it. And I said, "So how do you feel about that?" And he said, "Well, I'm sorry. Um, I guess I'm sorry I got caught." I said, "You sorry you did it? No, it was fun. I'm I'm still I'm not sorry we did it. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I got punished. Whatever that is, that's not repentance." He still loved it. He still loved it. The scriptures say this in Acts chapter 26 verse 20, that we should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. One of the translations says that we repent and do works that give evidence of repentance. Repentance happens on the inside. You can't see it in somebody else. All you can see it are the results of true repentance because it shows up in what they say, think, do, choose, and feel. They begin, they begin to do works of righteousness that give evidence of repentance. Has there ever been a turning? Did you know the foundational truths of the gospel, God's plan, uh, our problem, God's provision, our response in Jesus Christ? Have you been Have you come under the conviction of your state of sinfulness? And did you begin to hate it and turn from it, asking for God's help? Well, the the, the fourth and final thing that the Bible says about coming to faith is this. When we turn, we turn to place our active trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. We put our faith in Him. We put our trust in Him. We say, I can't save myself. I'm in trouble. I'm trusting Jesus in what you did when you died on the cross in my place for my sins, paying the penalty for my sins. And the fact that you rose from the dead and are alive today, proving you had the power to do these very things that you said you could do, I'm putting my trust in you to save me from this condition. And He does. And to surrender to Him as Lord, that means to the best of our understanding, we, we commit control of our life in eternity into the hands of Jesus. Now, we learn more and more about how to do that as we walk with Him through the rest of our lives here on earth. Uh, but, but the intention of our heart is, 
I mean, little Carrie Underwood, when she's a little blonde-headed gal, got it right. Her first big hit, Jesus Take the Wheel. You know, you say, okay, I, you, I, my answer to you is yes. Every day, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to? Yeah, I am yours, Lord. I am yours, Lord. The Scriptures say in John chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, He gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in His name. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. I like how Eugene Peterson again paraphrased that passage. He said, Say, to the, wel- say the welcoming word to God. Jesus is my Master. Embracing body and soul, God's work of doing in us what He did in raising Jesus from the dead. That's it. You're not doing anything. You're simply calling out to God, trusting Him to do it for you. That's salvation. So men, has that happened to you? Has anything like this that I've been describing ever happened to you? Again, my fear is that possibly, as it came to my mind, Steve, this week when we were dealing with all these precious young children. I'm more concerned about how we steward the shepherding of the souls of our young children than ever before because I have seen so many people that I think were vaccinated with a false faith and they never got the real thing. So what does that look like, Pastor? Well, it means a church full of people who don't, men and women who just ho-hum about Jesus. Well, this is nice. No real desire for God. No real desire to hear from His Word. No, no desire to share their faith. and for, No real concern for other people who don't know Jesus. Just kind of ho-hum. Nominalism. Why is there so much of that? I mean, not just, you know, not here, those other churches. I mean, why is there so much of that? I don't know the answer to that question completely, but I know... Part of it is what I've been describing. Is I fear there are many, many people who think that they're in the family and when they show up before the judgment, Jesus is going to say, Who are you? Why? It's because, well, you know, I, I was baptized again. I'm back to I was baptized as a whatever year old. I don't really remember it. I didn't really know what I was doing, but my mama said I was saved. And I've heard, I've heard, as a youth minister, I've heard parents talk their middle and high school students out of, out of coming to faith in Christ because they said, no, you don't need to do that. You did that when you were... They talk them out of it because they talked them, talk them into the wrong thing when they were babies, and now they're trying to talk them out of the right thing when they were old enough and feeling the weight of their sinfulness. Jack, have you ever seen that happen? I know you have. I, I finally had to get a mama out in the yard one day and said, you're keeping your son from making a genuine commitment to Christ. She was just, in, she just, I was glad she was not my mama. How's that? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's about as good as I can say about her without getting into sin. So, <laughs> so, so this is what I, I'm, concer- I'm concerned about these things. And I, I, I've not figured out, I've been working on this sermon all week, and I never could figure out how to rightly land the plane this morning, except to say, on Father's Day, out of all the things that I'm concerned about for your lives as your pastor, the thing that I'm most concerned about is that you are in the faith. 
So will you make sure you are? I'm here to help you with that. All of our pastors and staff are here to help you with that. All of our elders are here to help you with that. All of our life group leaders are here to help you with that. But let's get that settled. Let's take care of that. If you have doubts about it, it's too dangerous to go on and live with doubt. Let's, let's get this settled. And join us in being very careful with stewarding your children. Because it's, my children love Jesus. Well, of course they do. See, children, when children are born, they're not born with the guilt. We don't believe they're born with the guilt of Adam. We believe they inherited Adam's tendency towards sin so that when they mature to the place of moral responsibility, they do sin and choose to go their own way. There's a tendency toward that. But little children are innocent. And as you, as you expose them to Jesus and read them the great stories about Jesus and from the scriptures and pray to Jesus, the Lord Jesus comes to them. I mean, he, re, he is revealing himself to them in pre-salvation encounters. Well, the more they learn and know him, why wouldn't? There's no sin separating them from Jesus. Why wouldn't they love Jesus? He's the most lovable being in existence. The more you get to really know him, the more you love him. You can't help it. Well, of course they love him. And what he does is he stays very close to them so that when that day comes when they rebel against the Lord in sin, they're very tender-hearted. They sense the conviction of their sin and they very easily run to the Savior that they've been being drawn to since they were little children. Does that make sense? So how do you know who's who? It's difficult. That's why I'm thankful for our team in our church, the men and women. Uh, Pastor Jack Smith's on that team. Pastor Paul Holland's leading that team. Judy Myers is on that team. Men and women, many of you parents, who very carefully meet with parents and their children to just keep walking down this path when they make professions of faith. Uh, so we don't want to convince them that they're doing something they're not, and we want to bring them along to Christ at the earliest possible age that they can come to Him. And we want you in the family as well. Let me pray for you. So, Lord, I pray for all of the people in this room, all of our church family, that we would take this time at this season to test ourselves to make sure we are in the faith. I pray that you would open the eyes of every man and woman in this room, every student in this room, and you help them to know their true condition before you. And grant them grace to respond to you in saving faith. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. For more information about Dogwood Church, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org.